Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 1.4, Founding Kingdoms. This week I have to start with some notices. Firstly, the Agora Podcast Network. The what? The Agora Podcast Network. Essentially what this is, is a group of us like-minded podcasters getting together. We thought we'd call it Agora, just like the marketplace of the ancient Greeks, full of chat and debate and naked wrestlers. It's early days, but we have a website you can go to and see lots of other great podcasts. It's called agorapodcastnetwork.com. I shall post a link, but it's early days. And then secondly, in the Agora Podcast Network, we agree that we'd let you know about other podcasts in the network. And so I'm going to recommend a podcast called When Diplomacy Fails by Zach. Full of brio and enthusiasm with a great concept about how conflicts comes about and what impact it leaves afterwards. OK, enough of notices. Onward and upward. Now, last time we talked about the general story of the growth of Anglo-Saxon England in the 6th century, the emergence of an elite culture, and the start of the change from the society of Roman Britain to the tribal Anglo-Saxon England. Over the next few episodes, we're going to travel through the wonderful, diverse 7th and 8th centuries, with all their political and religious matherings. Walking through the 7th and 8th centuries, folks, is like walking through an old and deep forest on a sunny summer's day. For much of the time, you are sunk in gloom. It's difficult to see. You rather guess what's going on from the movement of the trees and the wind and the birds and the bees. Until every so often, you come out into a clearing and a blaze of light before travelling once more into the gloom. 
Slightly melodramatic of me, but hopefully you get the point. Sources and information are patchy. Just to give you the big picture then, before we dive into the forest. The period is all about how a patchwork of tribal communities and petty kings coalesce into a more structured England with seven leading kingdoms, often sexily called the Heptarchy. At the same time, lots of exciting things are going on. England is turning Christian again. English is being written down. The Anglo-Saxons are discovering, like the rest of Europe, that the Romans were really cool and they'd like to copy them a bit. And anyway, they had to find a way to organise themselves more effectively than as a bunch of hairy-arsed blokes with spears and their families. And so lordship and kingship begins to change. And we begin to see changes slowly appearing in the economy. So, into the forest. Last week we talked about the tribal hydage, which gave us a picture of a wide range of different Anglo-Saxon communities and petty kingdoms. So at the start of the 6th century, 500 plus sort of thing, the heptarchy doesn't exist. The heptarchy is not even a twinkle in the collective Anglo-Saxon eye. But what follows will almost inevitably be a flurry, a cascade of place names and obscure Anglo-Saxon names. And so I feel the urgent and burning need to have something of a geography lesson to help you put those names and places in context. And so I'm going to deliver that geography lesson structured around the kingdoms of the Heptarchy, because that'll serve us in good stead for the next couple of centuries and beyond. I'd ask you good folk of England to remember that the history of Anglo-Saxon England addresses a global audience. I'll ask for your forbearance. Or global at least, in the sense there's a bloke on holiday in Italy at the moment. At the same time, we'll cover each region's foundation story, as it were. So as the kingdoms of the Heptarchy emerged, they described their own history, their own creation stories, if you like. And these have come down to us, sometimes in fragments from Bede, sometimes from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Nowadays, historians are deeply, deeply sceptical about how much of these stories can be relied on as historical fact. Early Anglo-Saxon England was, of course, illiterate, so the stories could reflect surprisingly accurate traditions carefully passed down from bard to bard. Or they could reflect warped legends, but reflecting a kernel of truth. Or they could be total hogwash. From them, at least, though, we can find out what the later states thought of themselves, because their creation stories reflect a kind of back formation, the kings of the 8th century inventing a glorious golden past for themselves to the glorification of their dynasty. In fact, it's absolutely for sure that some of those stories are just that, stories. After all, all the dynasties trace a descent from a pagan god of some kind, which is unlikely. Not impossible, of course, but even more unlikely than winning the lottery. And as I know to personal cost, that is pretty unlikely. Starting with the geography then, one of the first things to note is that the geography of England had some significant differences to the modern map, which is almost never shown on historical maps. Although, it is of course shown on the map which I have helpfully provided on the website. These differences mainly concern the coast. You just have to remember that relatively little drainage or coastal flood defence has taken place. So when we talk about East Anglia, remember that the fens are pretty much impassable and infertile, covered with swamp, rather than massive, super-efficient farms of black soil. Ely literally sits on an island, 
the Somerset levels into which Alfred will one day flee, is exactly the same. Most large rivers will have much of the same issue. Rather than running in nice, neat, controlled channels, they'll flood or have large alluvial terraces. The northeastern estuarine river, the Humber, and the area around York in particular is marshy, liable to flooding. The southeast coast looks a little different, less deposit from LSD. Since we mentioned the Humber, let's start there, because the river in the north of England forms one of the major divisions in English history for many centuries, some would say to the current day, and finding it on the map will be of enormous benefit to you. Bede himself in the 8th century divided his narrative into the Southumbrians and the Northumbrians. The first name didn't catch on, but the second did. The Humber estuary is on the northeast coast of England and today separates a grieving world from God's own county of Yorkshire. Northumbria is a big part of the history of early Anglo-Saxon England, but obviously it's deeply anachronistic to talk about the big towns at this particular point since they don't exist, but it won't be long before the city of Yorfuric, the Roman, Aboricum and future York, is the most important city in Northumbria, capital of the north as it were. According to tradition, as Bede related, Northumbria was settled by the Angles. North of the River Humber in northern England, tradition had it that all the royal dynasties traced themselves back to a chap called Ida and his grandfather Aosa in the early 6th century. And that for some time the kingdom consisted of, effectively, a pirate fortress of what became the stunning fortress of Bamborough, known to Bernard Cornwall fans as Bebenburg. And at some point in the future there will be an Uhtred. But pretty soon, two kingdoms appeared in the northeast: Dara, the most northern, and Bernicia, just north of the Humber. Now I know what you're thinking. Hmm, you're thinking. Those don't sound at all like Anglo-Saxon names. And in which case, you collect a gold star. Because these are indeed Celtic names, and they suggest that maybe the Angles took over some existing British division and kingdoms. The division of Northumbria into two parts caused problems for many generations, after one of Ida's grandsons combined the kingdoms into one under the general name of Northumbria. Memories that there had been two royal houses ran deep. The focus for the Northumbrian leaders in these early years, like pretty much every ambitious Anglo-Saxon leader, was to expand outward at the expense of the British communities. And Northumbria at its height would extend all the way up to the Firth of Forth and Edinburgh. Next up, further south, was the area that would become Mercia, again by tradition settled by the Angles. This is the area of the mighty Midlands, a part of the country I am proud to call the county of my birth but which tends to be looked at with incurious eyes as people zoom up or down the M1 motorway on their way to somewhere more interesting. Mercia, of course, at this stage comprised many different Anglo-Saxon communities and were covered in the tribal hidage. But broadly, it was bounded in the north by the Humber, in the west by Wales, in the south by the River Thames, and the, in the east, and in the east by East Anglia, modern Norfolk and Suffolk. Much of it is composed of what would later be described as champion land, good, fertile country, bisected by the River Trent that travels northeast to southwest through the middle of Mercia. Though, of course, in the north, in Derbyshire, for example, the country is a bit wilder with the Peak District and the bleak Black Peaks. To the southeast was the most tempting of prizes, the town of Londonwick and the old deserted Roman city of London Borough 
At this time, these were part of the East Saxon community. We'll come back to Mercia at the end of the episode. To the east of Mercia are the Fenlands, modern Cambridgeshire and East Anglia, all the way to the North Sea. And it's the area probably the earliest settled by Anglo-Saxon tribes. And as the name suggests, settled by the Angles again. This is very fertile country of plains, at most rolling countryside, and from the start then, a powerful, successful kingdom, which would be one of the four surviving kingdoms to face the Danes and the great heathen army in 865. Despite its wealth, its origins are obscure, and although it's possible that the dynasty was established by someone called Wuffa in 571, who, by the way, traced his ancestry to Woden, a god, it's not until Raidwald, the guy in the Sutton Hoo burial ship, that we have an established dynasty. OK, sadly, this is turning into something of a slog, and I'm quite relieved that Anglo-Saxon England wasn't called the Duodecarchy or something, but hopefully you're still with me. We've knocked off Northumbria right in the north and northeast, Mercia in the middle down to the Thames Valley, and East Anglia in the east. Three down, four to go. We should nip down first to the far southeast of England, to Kent. It was here that tradition has it that the first Anglo-Saxon invaders arrived. These were Hengist and Horsa, who fought the British king, Vortigern. Historians note sceptically that Horsa means, um, horse, and Hengist means, um, stallion. So, something smells fishy, and it could all be pony nuts. According to Bede's famous passage, this is where the Jutes ended up, along with a patch of land in Hampshire and on the Isle of Wight. And Kent does indeed, very early on, show a distinctive culture from the rest of Anglo-Saxon England, but much of this owes less to the Jutes and more because of the Kingdom of the Franks, modern France, of course, which was just across the Channel. Trade and cultural and political links were close between Kent and the ruling dynasty of the Franks, the Merovingians. In fact, it is three generations before we can be sure of a Kentish character that probably really did exist. A man called Jormerick, father of the Athelbert, who was pretty solidly Lord of Kent in or around 560. Whether you describe Athelbert as a king so early is moot, but certainly later generations described him thus. The evidence of the first written law codes and a relatively orderly royal succession point to a well-organised and well-administered kingdom. And so, for example, it was Kent that St Augustine chose when he set up his Christian mission in 597. Kent took the earliest lead in setting up a high-quality coinage in the late 6th century, modelled on the Merovingian coins from the continent. As time went by, however, their geographical position became a bit less of an advantage, because it faced competition for trade from places like Ipswich, London, Southampton, and it was hemmed in politically by Mercia to the north and Wessex to the west. One kingdom Kent was able to dominate for many generations, though, was that of the East Saxons. Modern Essex, on the east coast north and east of London. And until the 8th century, including London, before the Mercians nabbed it off them. At various times, the control of the Essex kings ran over Hertfordshire, Middlesex and Surrey, but their control was usually transitory. It seems as though their first leader, Sabot, established his kingdom in 604 was one of the earliest rulers to accept Christianity. The second arrival specifically noted by the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle was a chap called Ayla in 477. 
His arrival is all very traditional and formulaic. Three ships, three sons. Big battles with the British at places with dodgy names, in one place named after his own son. However, Bede credits him with founding a kingdom that certainly did exist, the land of the South Saxons, nowadays called Sussex, on the south coast of England. Who knows if Ayla actually existed, but nonetheless he forms an ancient and powerful tradition for the kingdom that remembered him. The next South Saxon king we know anything about, though, doesn't appear until the late 7th century, 150 years later. Now the South Saxons will always be also Rands. To the north of Sussex, the Weald formed an almost impenetrable geographical barrier. OK, so we're now almost there. We have Northumbria in the north, north of the Humber estuary, all the way up to Edinburgh. Mercia in the middle and west to Wales. East Anglia in the east, just above the East Saxons in modern Essex and London. Then Kent in the far southeast. South Saxons just along the south coast from Kent, which leaves us with one more, Wessex. In fact, the next recorded arrival after Ayla is our very own Cherditch and his son, the guy to whom, through many deviations and peregrinations, the current monarchs supposedly trace themselves. Now, since he's supposed to be the founder of Wessex, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is keen to tell us all about him. And it's possible that the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, though started in 890, had access to records as early as 648, so not too far away. Nonetheless, the story of Cherditch is tinged with more than a smattering of dodginess. The entries in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle duplicate themselves for a start. Then there's the rather suspicious naming of British kings he fights after local place names. But never mind, forget all of that. This is the start of the British monarchy, so we should give it a bit of respect. Here then is the arrival of their earliest ancestor. 514. There came two aldermen to Britain, Cherditch and Coonrich, his son, with five ships to the place called Cherditch's Aura. On the same day they fought the British. The year 519. Cherditch and Coonrich received the West Saxon kingdom and the same year they fought with the Britons in the place they now call Cherditch's Ford. The royal line of Wessex ruled from that day. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now, the spooky thing about this is that even Bede admits they didn't call themselves the West Saxons at the time. Cherdich, if he existed, actually led a tribe called the Jewissa. Then, more spookily still, Cherdich is not a Saxon name, it is in fact a British one. Despite that, at the same time, two of his kinsmen, apparently, Stuff and Whitgar, apparently conquered the Isle of Wight. But then, since this was supposed to be another destination of the Jutes, according to Bede, so are Stuffen Whitgar part of the Gwissa, Saxons, Jutes, Britons? Or what? Or who? It's all a little confusing. So, who knows if Cherdich is historical or not? It might be a little unlikely, but it's by no means impossible. But then, how did he get his British name? There are some options. Number one. Cherdich might have been a member of a local British family, which had some administrative role on the South Saxon shore in post-Roman Britain. Seeing the way the wind is blowing, Cherdich threw in his lot with the Saxons, got a band of them together and takes matters into his own hands to make his fortune. Number two. Cherdich was a Welsh prince who'd married a Saxon. He was thrown out of the kingdom of Gwent for his Saxon sympathies and sought his fortune elsewhere. Or number three. Cherdich was a Saxon lord, sure enough. He simply had a British mother and so got his name that way. The other little factor to throw into this particular pot is that the centre of the early West Saxon kingdom will become Dorchester-on-Thames on the Upper Thames. And we know that there is a cluster of early Saxon burial sites on the Upper Thames. It's entirely possible that Cherdich and his sons were part of one of those early peacefully formed communities of Saxons and Britons and this invasion was simply the expansion and growth to dominance of an existing community rather than migration from overseas. Because of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which was a document commissioned by a king of Wessex and ancestor of Cherdich, we get a lot more of the story about the success of the Jewissa than any of the other early tribes. And, of course, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle has a big incentive to gloss as much as they can about their glorious ancestors. Just to cover the geography lesson bit, the Thames runs from the east coast through London all the way to Gloucestershire in the west of England, and Wessex comes to cover all the land south of the River Thames, west of the South Saxons in Sussex. There are important exceptions. The latest survivals in England and in the far southwest in Devon and Cornwall. There, the old British tribes will maintain their independence into the early years of the 9th century so for some time yet. So the Chronicle records the victories and squabbles of the Jewissa through the 6th century as they apparently seek to conquer British territories to the west and southwest. The truth is that Wessex, despite the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, is hardly more than top of the second division behind Mercia and Northumbria until the Vikings arrive to shake everything up. It's not clear from the sources we have, but the likelihood is 
that just as pre-Mercian Mercia is a mass of smaller Anglo-Saxon tribes and communities, collections of our heisters from the previous episode, the pre-Wessex Wessex is much the same. It's entirely possible that the shires of Wessex, Somerset, Wiltshire, Hampshire, Dorset and so on, reflect tribal divisions that slowly come to recognise the same overlord. Certainly the tribal hideage records has folk such as the Mionwara in Hampshire that appear to have been independent at some point. Bede himself talks about overlordship when he wrote about the position of Brett Walder. Brett Walder is an old English word that means something like wide ruler, so a hop, skip and a jump away to overlord. Bede wrote about the early Anglo-Saxon leaders being kings, but seriously, in the 6th and early 7th centuries, we're talking very much about lordship and tribal leaders more than we are kings. The process that produces kings, as we mentioned last week, is the process by which all these disparate groups come to recognise overlords and thereby come together into seven entities that structure themselves under kings. In the structure of dependence and tributes, overlordship is acknowledged in a well-known passage where Bede wrote that up to his day in the mid-8th century there had been seven Brett Walder. Brett Walders held imperium, leadership and power, over all the other Anglo-Saxon rulers of England. The type of leadership Bede's Brett Walders show is very typical of early overlordship at all levels because by and large the Brett Walders had nothing like the kind of men, material and ambition to create a close system of control and government. At best, it was a question of tribute, and at worst, simply an acknowledgement of a moral leadership, an honorific, if you like. The first Brett Walder was Ayla of the South Saxons, and the third will be Athelbert, King of Kent, the richest and most advanced Anglo-Saxon kingdom in 590. But the second was a leader of the Juissa, a chap called Chorlin. Chorlin has an interesting career, and after his death, as I say, it takes the Vikings to reset the dial and allow Alfred to put Wessex up where she belongs, but Chorlin represents a leap forward in the expansion of Wessex. Because if the Anglo-Saxon chroniclers to believed, there's a curiously fallow period after Cherditch establishes his kingdom, however that was done. Chorlin's reign then sees a string of victories, apparently including one in the southwest over three British kings, that takes the rule of Wessex and the Gwissa right up to the River Severn and the border of Wales, splitting Devon and Cornwall from their British counterparts in Wales. So this would therefore be the point, then, to talk about King Arthur. Odd thing to say, you might think, but the point is that if the story is based on anything at all, if Arthur, King of the Britons, did ever meet Dennis and his anarcho-syndicalist commune, it's got to be somewhere before Chorlin's reign that it happened. Nowadays, of course, King Arthur is accepted as being a nice story built up over the centuries, a creation of the poet and the long-haired of Mallory and Tennyson, a legend that has provided us with reams and reams of great epic tales and historical novels of varying quality, and the greatest ever seen in British comedy. Well, that's without doubt not the way it's always been. For very long periods, Arthur has been seen absolutely as historical fact. There are very early suggestions of an Arthurian legend. So there's a Welsh poem of around 600 that has a reference to a great warrior called Arthur. 
And then at a similar time, there's a mini spate of namings of people after Arthur, the name cropping up in the names of the few kings in Wales that we know about. But the real start of the legend is Nenius, the 9th century chronicler at the Welsh court of Murfin Finch. Nenius's work is very much along the lines that the Welsh should be warriors of Christianity. He was writing in a time when the nearest Anglo-Saxon kingdom, Mercia, was going through a bit of a bad patch. So pressure on the Welsh court was easing and confidence growing. It's an overtly anti-English piece, part of encouraging the Welsh to take up their heritage. Nenius's story is a real crowd-pleaser, with the proud and stupid Vortigern losing most of his kingdom to the evil Saxons. The prophecy of Emrys, with a battle between a red dragon and a white dragon, taking place above a cloth floating on an underground lake. Three times the red dragon was driven to the edge of the cloth and almost defeated. Three times it fought back until at last the white dragon lay dead, signifying the destruction of the hideous Saxon. Marvellous stuff! Nenius then talked about a series of twelve battles, all of which are almost completely untraceable, but at this point it links up with Gildas's story, as Nenius has the last great battle, being this battle that Gildas also talked about, of Mons Bedonicus, where the Saxons are defeated and where fifty years of peace were established, which was in fact quite possibly the period in which Gildas was writing. After that, Arthur gets wound into more histories, but none of them predate Nenius, which is a cool 300 years after the events they're supposed to be describing. And then in the 1130s, it's Geoffrey of Monmouth and his history of Britain that really makes the story fly, and then Mallory in the 15th century, aided and abetted by Caxton and his printing press, thrust Arthur out into the mainstream, followed by Tennyson's riffing on Mort d'Arthur in his Idols of the Kings in 1850. Of course, the evidence for Arthur's existence is mighty skinny. There are straws in the wind that suggest, at shadowy outlines, the spate of namings in the early 7th century, the mention of Mons Bedonicus by Gildas, the early reference in the Welsh poem. But maybe there is another one in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, interestingly enough. Because, as I say, the entries between the arrival of Cherditch at the end of the 6th century are mighty thin. And after the death of the first Bretwalder Ayla, there is a gap of about 50 or 60 years until our Chorlin is named as Bretwalder in about 560 and has his string of victories. So there's a possibility, is there not, that the series of battles recorded by Nenius and the great victory of Mons Bedonicus did exist and did hold back the spread of the nascent Anglo-Saxon kingdoms for some years. That this period, just before Chorlin's victories, is the period of peace in which Gildas is writing. It's possible that, in fact, it was the first Bretwalder Ayla, who is Arthur's antagonist at Mons Bedonicus. That's what the timings would suggest, although Cherditch has also been suggested. As to where this great battle of Mons Bedonicus might have been, well, there's a question for you. Liddington Castle says one line of thought. Mons Bedonicus means Mount Baden, and the battle is referred to as a siege. So a hill fort seems a likely candidate. Liddington is an ancient Iron Age hillfort on the ancient path of the Ridgeway, an old line of communication that runs from the delights of modern Swindon to the glories of modern Luton, but which in the days of yore was a major trade route from southwest to southeast. Liddington is in an area particularly heavily populated by hillforts that were reoccupied at the end of the Roman period, 
And then close by Lidington is the village of Badbury, which philologists say could have come from the Celtic Baden. He pays your money and takes your choice, or more likely refuse to make a choice at all on the grounds that it's all wild conjecture. There are other theories available. Did read a theory that maybe it was at a place in the Chiltern Hills where the Saxons fought their way up the dry Chiltern valleys, reaching for the Oxfordshire plains, only to meet their defeat at the head of the valley and be pushed back again. So, putting Arthur aside is a bit of fun, and after all, history is not about fun. It's about reason, light, justice and the pursuit of truth. Then let's finish this episode by looking a bit more at Mercia. And let's take it up to the start of the 7th century, where we'll pick it up again next time. The aim is to use Mercia as an example of how these regions and tribal Anglo-Saxon communities came together to form these larger kingdoms, which were emerging in the early years of the 7th century. Mercia would become the leading kingdom in England. But for various reasons of fate, its surviving written records are remarkably weak. So we know of it largely from the writings of its enemies. Bede, for example, was a Northumbrian, and his pride in his patria comes through, and since Northumbria and Mercia were neighbours, and often warring neighbours at that, he finds it pretty much impossible to keep his antagonism completely under control. Bede tells us that the founder of the royal dynasty of Mercia was a chap called Churl. But by the 8th century, Mercian kings would be boasting that actually their founder was a hero called Ichel, who ruled a whole century before. Which is probably a good example of the back formation of foundation stories in which the Anglo-Saxon dynasties indulged. The core of Mercia in the 6th century was an impressive group of perhaps 40 or 50 regions, covering the modern Midland shires of Leicestershire, Warwickshire, Shropshire, Nottinghamshire, southern Derbyshire, an impressively large territory of maybe 12,000 hides, so for the period, a 10-ton gorilla. Mercians were Anglians, and these Midland shires around them were a patchwork of smaller Anglo-Saxon communities, pushing themselves into and against the old British communities, and of course up against Wales in the west. And so by 600, they called themselves Miesa in Old English, which means the border people. The patchwork of peoples who lived around them formed many different sizes of community, just like the Heistingers we talked about last week. And over the 6th century, the Mercians persuaded or forced these smaller communities to join them. Let's take an example of this. So, on the River Tame, not to be confused with the River Thames, in a place called Tamworth today, were a group of folk who called themselves the Thomasiten which means folk settled on the River Tame. Here they developed a tribute centre, similar to the ones we discussed at Rendlesham or Yeavering, which became a royal ville for the Mercian royal house. In later times, the Thomasite came under the control of an important official called an alderman, in which the memory of their original community and leader survived. There's another little group called the Harepingas, at a place now called Repton, which would be an important monastery patronised by the Mercian royal house. So in some way, these local strongmen who bossed these small communities had been persuaded to come under the protection of the Mercian guerrilla. But it would have taken a long time for Mercia to get anywhere by eating up tiny folk like this. And around them were a couple of much greater communities, who by the end of the 6th century were thinking of themselves as kingdoms in their own right. The Hawissa, centred on Worcestershire, Gloucestershire and Warwickshire in the southwestern Midlands, 
appear in the tribal hydage with a substantial 7,000 hides. But by the start of the 7th century, the kings of the Hwissa were paying tribute to their Mercian overlord. The theory is that this may be connected with the pressure from the south of Chorlin and the West Saxons, who, as we've said, win that big battle against three British kings in 577. So maybe the Hwissa didn't like the look of the cut of the collective West Saxon jib. After all, they weren't Angles like the Hwissa were. And maybe the Hwissa appealed to Big Mercian Brother for help. However, the Hwissa kept their titles as kings, but they're clearly sub-kings under the Mercian king. Until in the 8th century, when a king of Mercia called Offa decided that one king is quite enough, that over in super-cool modern Francia, on the continent, emperors like Charlemagne don't suffer sub-kings hanging around. And so Offa persuaded them that the title of alderman was perfectly grand enough. And there's a similar story to the Hwissa of the Magenseiter, a large petty kingdom centred on Herefordshire. And so as they took over folk of these sizes, Mercia grew very rapidly. Until we come to the first Mercian king, we can really verify a man called Pender. Over the next two episodes, we'll talk about the 7th century through the eyes of your man Pender, the last great pagan warrior king. Hurrah! So until then, everyone, good luck and have a great fortnight. <laughs>